0: We've been following basically the life and ministry of Paul the Apostle. We've watched this man converted on his way to Damascus. We've watched him zealously serving the Lord. After he was apprehended by Jesus Christ, radically changed, he's taken several missionary journeys, but he's always had a heart to preach to his own people. Oh, if I could just go back, Paul thought, to Jerusalem, to those Jewish people who knew me, perhaps you had the same feeling. You thought, if I could only go back home, If I could only share with those people I graduated from high school with, oh, I can't wait for my high school reunion. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation, but I have. And it didn't always turn out the way I wanted it to. I thought that there would be so many people who'd be excited because of the changes in my life, but I found out that a lot of people were casually indifferent, like, oh, that's very nice. And some people were out and out astonished. You, a Christian? You, a minister? And then there's other people who are hostile toward it. When Paul went to Jerusalem and shared with his Jewish compadres what God had done, they certainly were not excited. They really wanted to tear him apart. And I have dug out of the book of Acts... A few scriptures I'd like to share with you in retrospect to give you a taste of what it would be like to follow Paul. If you were in his missionary team, you certainly would have no boredom. There would be not one dull moment. His ministry was exciting. He was like the Christian Indiana Jones of the early church. He found himself in a lot of death-defying predicaments. Um, In Damascus, After he had come to know Jesus Christ, after three days of solitude, he was filled with zeal. And all he could think about is, hey, I'm going to fully follow the Lord. I mean, if I was a full antagonistic Jewish rabbi against Christians, now that I found Jesus, I'm not going to be wishy-washy, I'm not going to be halfway, I'm not going to be religiously, mildly inoculated with Christianity, I'm going to go for it. Well, this is what happened. Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the very Christ. And now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. And the disciples took him by night, let him down through the wall in a large basket. So he found that the Christian life at this point was a little bit dangerous, but it didn't end there. From Damascus, he goes back to Jerusalem the first time to share with his brethren. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Greeks. But they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then later on, he went on a missionary journey to Antioch, and we read, But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raising up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. So he went on to Iconium, and this is what we read there. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derby. The cities of Lyconia to the surrounding region. So when they were in Lystra, this is what we read. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and then drug him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Well, when he got up again, he went back into the city and he preached. I mean, now after a while, you might think, okay, I, I take, I take the hint. They don't like me. I can live with that. I'll leave. I won't do this anymore. This is not profitable. People are beating me up wherever I go. People want to stone me wherever I go. They want to see me dead. Perhaps I should just put a lid on it and zip it up and not be so bold and so verbal it's getting to be awkward. Well, he went to Corinth and they tried to arrest him. Now when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. So you can understand, when Paul finally gets to Ephesus, and he brings out all of the church leaders, and he takes them to the beach, and it's his farewell speech, what he meant when he said to them, I was serving the Lord with all humility with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. Wherever he went, he incurred danger and persecution. It wasn't that he wanted people to dislike him. It wasn't that he tried to draw antagonism. It just happened. He was the kind of Christian that was so bold he was black or white. You know, I heard one time, actually I read, I couldn't hear it because the guy who wrote this is dead. But he said, when you preach, don't preach to be understood. Preach so that it's impossible to be misunderstood. Cut a straight line. And Paul the Apostle was that kind of a man. Now I want you to keep your finger here and turn over to the book of Second Corinthians chapter 4. In verse 1, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. Verse 8, We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not struck out. That's what it literally means. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be shown forth or manifest in our mortal flesh. Now, turn over to the 11th chapter of this same book, chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians. In verse 23 on, he speaks about his own experiences serving the Lord. Verse 24, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. They were generous. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times shipwrecked. A night and the day I've been in the deep. In journeys often, perils of water, perils of robbers, perils of my own countrymen. In perils of Gentiles, perils in the city, perils in the wilderness, perils in the sea, perils among false brethren. In weariness, toil, sleeplessness, hunger, thirst, fasting, cold, nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for the churches? So, you that are in the school of ministry, this is what you have to look forward to. I'll tell you why I brought this up, for two reasons. One, it's pertinent to our text. Secondly, there is a dark side of serving the Lord that we don't like to talk about often. And it would seem, if you followed Americana logic, that says when you succeed, it means you're doing everything right. When things aren't going right, it means you're doing something wrong. Contrary to that logic, it might be logical, but it's not theological. There is a dark side of serving the Lord. It's not Murphy's Law when things don't pan out the way you want to when you're serving Jesus Christ. It could be God's way of beating you down to a place of humility, thus usefulness, thus dependence upon Him in all things. When you follow the list that Paul went through, unless you are totally dependent on the Lord, you are sunk, basically. And I love what Brother Andrew, who founded and maintains the ministry called Open Doors, ministering to persecuted nations, says. He says, I live my life. I get myself into places that unless God gets me out of them, I'm dead. Just very bold for his faith. But it's not Murphy's Law... It's the law of the Spirit, and it furthers the Gospel. Paul said to the Philippians, I don't want you guys to think that me being in jail is something that is hindering the Gospel. No, it's furthering the Gospel. Hey, there's folks here in prison, these guards, who never would have heard of Jesus Christ unless a prisoner who is a Christian was chained to them. And now even people in Caesar's own prison are becoming Christians. And the Gospel is being spread throughout. Well, in chapter 3 of Acts... We've uh, chapter 23 of Acts. I won't take you back that far in retrospect. Paul has faced two groups so far. The Jews in the temple courts. They caused a riot. They wanted to kill him. Then the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, the elders of the Jews who tried Jewish religious cases. In both of these instances, he failed miserably. And that is, they didn't receive his witness. Nobody turned to the Lord. Nobody was repenting. Nobody raised their hand when he gave the altar call or came forward. No new believers' packets were taken from his hands. And no doubt he was very discouraged because we read in verse 11, but the following night, now he's in the barracks in prison, the Lord stood by him and said, Cheer up, or be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness At Rome. I'm sure Paul was in that prison wondering about his future, probably recalling the words of the prophet Agabus, who said, as he was on his way to Jerusalem, that the man who wears this belt will be bound in Jerusalem. And so all the people at Ephesus and all the people at the cities he stopped off at said, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem, man, they'll kill you. Don't go. Paul said, I'm going. And perhaps he's thinking, Oh, why didn't I listen to them? I'm probably out of God's will. Now I'm confined. This didn't do Jesus any good. And probably his circumstances, you know how this is, don't you, started getting to them. He started taking his eyes off the Lord and off the work of the gospel onto himself. And he thought, I'm a failure. What's going to happen? And so Jesus comes along and says, Be of good cheer. And notice, when did Jesus come to him? At night. At night, the darkest part, nobody was there. He was all alone. And right when he needed it, at his time of deepest need, Jesus came and he said, As you have testified for me in Jerusalem, you must also bear witness at Rome. In other words, God's not finished with you yet. You remember when disciples were out on the boat, Sea of Galilee, Jesus wasn't there, he was on the mountain praying. In fact, Jesus sent them out on the lake alone. And he said, go over to the other side. And a tempest started coming up, and the waves were about to knock the boat down. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes walking on the water, and he says almost the very same thing, be of good cheer. There are a few certainties that you and I must realize if you're going to have assurance when you go through a time like this, a storm, a trial. A downtime, a dark time of serving the Lord. When you do everything right spiritually, but things aren't working out well outwardly, there's a few things you need to know. When you're in that storm like the disciples in the boat, or you're in a prison like Paul, uh, and you're wondering, hey, I've been obedient. How come there's no smooth road for me? The first certainty is that God allowed me to be here. In fact, God may have brought you to that place. Well, it would be easy for Paul to think, I've made a mistake. I shouldn't be in prison. Something's not working out right. I probably shouldn't have opened my mouth at the temple courts in Jerusalem. It was out of God's will. Just like Agabus and all these guys were telling me I shouldn't have done it. But notice what it says in verse 11. As you have testified for me, Paul, in Jerusalem, you must also bear witness at Rome. You testified for me. And just like you did it here, I'm going to send you from here all the way to Rome to do it. You weren't out of God's will. In fact, God brought him over to this place. Just like the disciples who were out in the Sea of Galilee. You know why the disciples were facing a storm? You know why their boat was rocking back and forth and they almost sank? It was Jesus' fault. I want to underline that. I want to make that very plain. It was Jesus' fault that they were in a boat almost drowning because Jesus commanded the disciples to get in the boat and go over across the sea, knowing that there would be a storm, knowing that he would come to them in the midst of the storm and give them cheer. But he sent them there. Another example. The children of Israel are led out of Egypt. They're taken through some canyons and some desert and they're perched at the front of the Red Sea. All of a sudden, they look back and they see the Egyptian army coming through. In front of them is the Red Sea. To the right is desert and mountains. To the left is desert and mountains. And on the other side, the only way out are the Egyptian army coming to kill them. They're boxed in. Why? God led them there. God purposely trapped them to show them when there isn't a way out, He'll provide a way out. God brought me here. If you can recognize the power and sovereignty of God... Every time you're facing a downtime, it will revolutionize your periods of pain. It will revolutionize your times. You won't be yelling at God and complaining and shaking your fists. Why would you allow me to do this? Instead of, okay, I'm in a storm. The boat's about to sink. In fact, I feel it going down. Jesus, where are you? What are you doing this for? Uh, Not complaining at Him, but show me the lessons I need to learn here. You've brought me to this place. You've allowed me to come here. Secondly, He will come to you during that time. As Jesus came to Paul... And it's really irrelevant how he did it. It's really irrelevant how Jesus stood by him. Was it audible? Was it visible? That's not the point. Paul knew it when he saw it or when he experienced it. Jesus came to him. The disciples out in the boat, Jesus came to them. Do you, uh, do you know why Jesus walked on the water to him? Do you think it was to impress them? When Jesus walked out on the water when they were in the boat on the Sea of Galilee? Jesus could have just calmed the sea from the mountain. He was watching the whole thing praying. Couldn't he have just said, hey, peace be still. And they would have gone, whew. And he could have told them later. Why did Jesus walk on the water to the disciples? Not to impress them. He came on the very thing that was about to sink them. On the very waves that were about to capsize them, Jesus walked on them and took control over it and was there in the midst of it. That's why they flipped out when they looked out there and Jesus said, Hey, it's me, don't be afraid. They didn't expect him. And it's just like us when we're going through those dark, dismal, cloudy times of trials. And we're wondering where God is. We don't expect Him so often in those times. But it's that very trial that He uses, that He comes to us, that He approaches us in to deal with a certain area of our life. That storm He's using to come to us, to get our attention. And the third thing we need to realize is that we'll grow from it. Somehow, like Job said, when I'm out of this ordeal, I'll come forth tested like gold, It's for my betterment. I'm being tried in the fire, but I'll come forth as gold. I love to quote Samuel Rutherford. wrote about the 14-1500s. He was writing in his journal one day, actually he was writing a letter to a friend of his who was experiencing tribulation. He also was. And he wrote a little informal poem that said, Why should I tremble at the plow of my Lord that makes deep furrows in my soul? He is no idle husbandman. He purposes a crop. He's doing it for a reason, and I'll grow because of it. Well, let's look at verse 12. And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. Now, in the beginning of this chapter, there was prejudice leveled against Paul. That didn't work, so they turned to murder They turned to a plot, and now a plot is afoot. Kill Paul, 40 of us. We won't eat a thing until Paul is dead. There were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy, and they came to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. A couple chapters back, there was a young man by the name of Stephen. Stephen stood before, no doubt, the same group of people. And the Scripture tells us that they could not withstand the wisdom with which he spoke. And so what did they do? Do you remember? Did they turn at that point because they couldn't withstand the wisdom with which he spoke? They say, this makes sense, man. I'm going to do something about it. No, they took Stephen and dragged him out of the city and stoned him. They were so bent on putting the message and the messenger away, that they wouldn't stop at anything. And so they wanted to kill him. They did it all in the name of God, in the name of religion. And these guys, these religious folks here in this chapter, are doing it for the same reason. You know, there is a danger in having zeal without knowledge. I know a lot of people who are just zealous for the Lord, and we put such a high premium on zeal. And that's good to be zealous. But it's good to have zeal mixed with the reason you are zealous. Zeal according to knowledge. Otherwise you'll go out and slam your face against the wall and take about 20 other people with you. Now if you have zeal without knowledge, you're dangerous. If you have knowledge without zeal, you're dead before you get anywhere. It's all head knowledge. Knowledge puffs up. Love edifies. But if you get knowledge of the Word of God, the principles of Scripture, the truth, mix it with zeal. Wow! That's why I'm so excited to see these students in this school. I think that they have a high amount of zeal. And a lot of them already have a good deal of knowledge. And if we can add to that by the word of God and supplement that, they'll go far. Lots of holy wars have been fought by people who have zeal without knowledge. They say, you know, if they're not going to follow our way, we'll kill them. The Crusades started that way. Let's kill those people who don't believe like we believe. Let's take over the land from these uh, Turks and these Jews who killed Jesus. They killed Jesus, we'll kill them. Arabs today are quick to say, Holy war! Holy war! To kill people in the name of God. And we have to be careful of that attitude, that we don't take people out who disagree with us, that we deal gently with them. That's why Jesus... um, said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. You know, here they are taking an oath, right? Okay, man, we won't eat. We won't eat till Paul is dead. Paul didn't die. Forty of them took this oath. Do you think they starved to death? No. I think they said something rashly. What they were trying to do is bind themselves under a promise that they would do something. But Jesus said, don't do that. You know, let your yes be yes, your no be no. And they uh, made an oath that they couldn't keep. And verse 15. Now you therefore together with the council suggest to the commander that he be brought down tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him, but we are ready to kill him before he comes near. And so when Paul's sister's son or Paul's nephew heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. And Paul called one of the centurions... To him, And he said, take this young guy, this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. So they took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say. The commander took him by the hand, went aside and asked privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But don't yield to them. Because more than 40 of them lie in wait for him. Men who have bound themselves by an oath. And they won't eat or drink until they've killed him. And now they're ready, waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, Tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. There's a tremendous lesson we're getting here to concerning the providence of God. Now, Paul's in prison. Forty people take an oath. They're determined to kill Paul. What they forget, or what they're blind to, is that Paul is an apostle called by the Most High God. You don't thwart a God who has a promise made to a guy like Paul. You don't mess with the plan of God. I don't care how many oaths you take. If God wants something done, and God wants something done through a person, you're not going to stop it. And I said it before, and it's so important, you are invincible, folks. Nothing can happen to you. You're invincible until God's finished with you. That doesn't mean you take unruly risks. That means, you know, you take all the necessary precautions, but you will be here until God is finished with you, if you belong to Him. And the moment God is done with you, when you have finished your testimony, you finished the work God has called you to do, you've learned the lessons, you've done your part on earth for the kingdom of God, then God, in His time, in His sovereign purpose, takes you home. And when He's done with you, who wants to hang around anyway? When the job's been done, when you've done, according to the will of God, all that you can do, you fulfilled His plan, and only God knows that. Hey, I'm ready. Not that I want to, okay, just let me do it and let me get out of here. I want to die. No, I don't have a death wish. I love life. It's exciting. But I also know what God has planned for me. That's why Paul said, I'm in a straight between two. I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. But I know it's more necessary for me to abide here for you. So you're invincible until God's finished with you, like the two witnesses in the book of Revelation. It is said, when they finished their testimony, when they were all done, when God was finished with them, then the beast was given power to kill them. But it wasn't until they had finished their testimony, and so it is with us. There is a lesson of sovereignty. It says in Ephesians that God works all things according to the counsel of His will. The word sovereignty is very important. God is sovereign. The word sovereign means super or above, he's above everyone else. When he makes a plan, no human being can limit that plan. God does what he wants to, when he wants to, by his own will, separate and distinct from anybody else's desire wish. When God does what he sets out to do, he will do it. That's the sovereignty of God. God doesn't react. God knows everything in advance, and it's planned. Though he acknowledges the free will of man, he knows in advance what their decisions will be. And so God can declare the end from the beginning because he knows everything. Now, I I admit, that's hard to imagine. In fact, it's impossible to understand as a human being because I don't have foreknowledge. I can't see the next week of my life as a rerun. But you know, God can. David the psalmist declared, we live our life as a tale that has been told. God knows what's going to happen all throughout this next week, all throughout this next month. God knows who you're going to marry. God knows when you're going to be buried, if he should tarry. God knows it all. You live your life as a tale that had been told. And he doesn't react. He knows in advance. He can declare it in advance. He's sovereign. It's an important resting point for the Christian. Then there's another lesson here about the nephew of Paul. And that is the providence of God. The providence of God is where Paul's nephew just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And I use that word loosely. He just happened to overhear this plot. And he thought, well, you know, I'm going to tell Uncle Paul. Hey, Paul, these guys are after you. And I heard this whole thing. Really? Well, go tell the commander what's going on. And through this series of natural events, it preserved Paul's life so that he ends up in Caesarea and eventually ends up in Rome. So we have God's sovereignty. He says, Paul, you testified for me here. You'll testify for me in Rome. God's powerful. He's got a plan. You can't thwart it. How does he work out his sovereign plan? Through providence. The setting up of natural circumstances, natural events to get his will accomplished. Now, folks, there's a difference between the miraculous and the providential. A miracle, and people, you know, they toss that term around so loosely. They go, oh, well, you know, miracles, the sunrise is a miracle. No, it's not. It's something that you see every single day. It's not out of the ordinary. It's miraculous for you to pull it off. Yeah. If you could create life, it would be miraculous. For God, he works on a different set of laws. In his physical dimension, he can transcend the limitations of humanity. So the miraculous would be best defined as God intervening in human affairs dramatically against the laws that we call the laws of nature. That's a miracle. For a man to stand on water and and displace the water and stand up and not sink. That's miraculous. It's against the laws of physics, physics, against the laws of nature. For the sun to stand still, or for the earth to be in such a a juxtaposition to the sun where it seems that it stands still. That's miraculous. Providence is different. It's where God does act within the life of human beings, but he does it supernaturally naturally. He sets up events, natural events, to get his will accomplished. Here's a good example. There's a great story in the Old Testament, the book of Esther. It's the only book in the Bible where the word God is not mentioned. The name of God is not even in the book at all. Uh, But the providence of God is. There was a king in Persia named Xerxes, who hated a guy named Mordecai. He had a thing against him, and he wanted to kill him and all the Jews, but as providence would have it. A relative of Mordecai named Esther becomes one of the queens in the land of Persia. She's a Jewish lady. And she has quite a pull with King Xerxes. And just when this plot has been delivered to kill the Jews through a guy named Haman, who hated Mordecai, hated the Jews, Uncle Mordecai takes Esther aside and lets Esther know that the reason she's the queen, the reason she won this beauty contest was not so that she could be on Teen Magazine or be on television in a Miss America contest, but that God used this set of events providentially for his will. So he said, you know, Esther, if you fail to act on behalf of the Jews at this point, deliverance for the Jews will raise up from another section, another quarter. But, Mordecai said, it could be that you have come to the kingdom as queen for such a time as this. You have come to this time in history. You are the queen of the land. You are in this position for such a time as this. God has placed you here strategically to perform a ministry, to save the Jewish people. And so through a set of events, things began to turn, and King Xerxes, through the pull of Queen Esther, interceding. Xerxes started venting his hatred against Haman. Haman, who made a gallows to hang Mordecai got hung on his own gallows, and the Jews were saved because of providence. And that is, providence would be defined as the sovereign manipulation of ordinary events. God sets things up. You think, wow, what a coincidence. No, it's not. You look back and you go, no way. It seemed so natural then, but it was supernatural. And You've probably experienced something like that at different times in your life, haven't you? Where you look back and you think, I met just the right person at the right time, and he told me about this other gal who told me about this other guy, and then, wow, that's providence. I've told you the story about my Cheeto experience where I went to the beach one night in Huntington Beach, and it was 1 o'clock in the morning, and I was saying, God, use me. Show me that you really want to use my life for your glory. And I was sitting on a lifeguard tower praying this. And I heard a crunching sound, and I looked underneath the lifeguard tower, and there's a guy all alone eating Cheetos at 1, 1.30 in the morning. I'm thinking, this is weird. I'm on the beach alone at 1.30 in the morning saying, God, use me. I am awakened suddenly by the roaring sound of a Cheeto bag <laughs> to only to find one munching them underneath me. This must be a setup. So I decided, well, I'll step out and see what happens. And I just started mildly sharing my testimony with him. He was very open, very receptive. And after a few minutes, actually, about a half an hour, he received Jesus Christ. That was Providence. It just so happened that one time when I was living in Israel, I went down to Eilat, down by the Red Sea. And it just so happened that I met this gal from Switzerland and uh, her friend. They were there. They were unbelievers. And it just so happened that we got into a conversation in broken English. She was trying to communicate to me, and I was using an interpreter, and she gave her life to Jesus. Well, that didn't just coincidentally happen. I believe that God manipulated the ordinary events for me to be there at that time, her to be there at that time, it wasn't my doing, it wasn't my fabulous ability to communicate the gospel. I just shared what the word says and her life was changed. That's providence. And so it is here with Paul and his nephew and him being able to be bailed out of prison. The providence of God. And uh, before we move on, let's see what our time is like. Oh, plenty of time. I want you to mark something that I find very encouraging, especially for young people. God used this young boy, this nephew. We don't know how old he is, but, you know, I found that a lot of people dismiss children. Well, they can't really be used of God until, well, you know, they grow up. Paul told Timothy, Timothy, let no one despise your youth. When I first came to town, I was 25, 26 years old. And, uh, you know, people, I said, well, I'm, I'm a pastor. You're a pastor? You're so young. How could you possibly be a pastor? And there's lots of you that feel called by God to be used by God. And you are using as a limitation your age, be that you're too young or even too old. God's calling comes at any age old or young. God called Caleb when he was, you know, 80 years old. 85 years old. That's when his ministry really started taking off. This guy was a young guy. God used him providentially. Timothy was a young man. Many, like Samuel, in the Old Testament, were young when God used them. Samuel wanted to serve the Lord. And one night, God spoke to him in a vision. God said, Samuel, Samuel. And he thought it was Eli, the priest. He goes, what do you want? He said, I, di- "I didn't call you. Go back to sleep." So he went back to sleep and he heard another voice a little while later. "Samuel, Samuel, I'm sure you know the angels are up there cracking up, <laughs> kind of like God playing a joke on him or something. Kind of like knock and run." He woke Eli up. He said, "What do you want, man?" And I said, Samuel, I didn't call you. You must be dreaming. Go back to bed. It happened another time. He said, listen, next time this happens, it's probably God trying to call your attention. So instead of getting me out of bed and waking me up, just say, speak, Lord, your servant hears. And God spoke to Samuel, a young man, and used him. I see the future of Christian movements always beginning with youth movements. Because people at a younger age are more open. We, we know that as a fact. I, I want to do a little survey here. How many of you in this room came to know Jesus Christ after the age of 25? Raise your hand. Okay, now put your hands down. How many of you came to know Jesus before the age of 25? Raise your hand. Now that's, put them down. That's worldwide. Statistically, that's... The fact. Most people, the Billy Graham Association found out, receive Jesus Christ in their teenage years. And the odds of a person coming to faith are exponentially decreased. This is on a physical plane. I'm taking the spiritual out. On a physical plane, are exponentially decreased as they get older. Because people form their whole idea and ideology when they're young. They're open to things. In junior high and high school, they're searching for meaning and they want purpose and So forth. And oftentimes God will reach out and grab a person and don't despise your youth or let anybody despise your youth. I can't wait to see what's going to happen with some of you who want to serve the Lord where God's going to take you. God will use you providentially and no doubt many of you supernaturally. All right. Verse 23, and he called for two centurions saying, prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night. You think, wait a minute, to guard one preacher? What is that, 470 soldiers? This isn't Terminator, this is Paul the Apostle. But you know, that in and of itself speaks to our hearts. The Bible says God uses the wrath of man to praise him. And God is giving Paul an armed escort. Nothing can possibly happen to him with 400 soldiers on the way from Jerusalem to Caesarea. Guarded and kept in Caesarea. He'll be there for two years. To use him to go to Caesarea and to preach the gospel at the center of the world empire. God uses even the ungodly Roman government for his purpose and glory. Even the wrath of man to praise him. And so, verse 24, provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the cat. I'm sorry, Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter in the I couldn't resist that the following manner: Claudius Lysias to the most excellent Felix the cat, Felix the governor. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. Now, notice how he's kind of changing the story a little bit to make him look good. It didn't happen that way, did it? This guy who wrote the letter was about to beat Paul to get the truth out of him, and Paul had to show his card. I'm a Roman citizen. You're going to beat me unlawfully? And I said, quick, let him go. Don't touch him. But now he's kind of doctoring the story up to make him like, you know, they, they, they really wanted to do him harm, but I, I saved him. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their counsel. He didn't, but uh, he said he did. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. And then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. The next day they left, which is about 30-mile walk, long walk. The next day they left the horsemen to go on with them and return to the barracks. And when they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked, What province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. I want to wrap up this evening's Bible study with two long lasting lessons, two things that we can keep in our minds about this section of Acts. If you're taking notes, you should be. You can apply it to your life. Two lessons out of this. Both begin with Ps. First of all, perseverance. And then second of all, providence. Paul was a guy who persevered. He was not a panty waist. He was not the kind to go with the flow until things got hard. He was the kind who would look and keep his hand to the plow and stick at it even if it meant death. He persevered. He kept at it look back to chapter 20 for just a moment i made mention of this at the beginning of the study paul is with the ephesian elders out on the beach and everybody said don't go to jerusalem verse 22 and see now i go bound in the spirit to jerusalem not knowing the things that will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying the chains and tribulation await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I might finish my race with joy in the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. He did not look for the easy way. He didn't care how the way was. He was concerned with one thing and one thing alone. Is my life pleasing to God? Am I finishing what He's given me to do? Will I be able to stand before God and have Jesus say, Well done, good and faithful servant. That's all I want to do. That's all I live for. I've told you the story before of the minstrels who played in Europe during the winter months, years and years ago. And they played for money. They were actors. They put on a little show. And financially, times were getting tough for the Europeans. and They didn't want to go to get entertained. They didn't have the money. And it was wintertime. The snow would fall in many of the provinces of Germany and Switzerland and France where they were playing. And fewer and fewer people every night were coming out to see these minstrels. They gave their all, but nobody showed up to watch them. So they huddled together and... They said, look, what should we do? Last night there was a handful of people. Tonight there will probably be less people because it's snowing outside. We've been working at this for years. For what? To play to a handful of folks? Where's all the crowds? I say we give people their money back for the tickets they bought and we just go home. Fold up our show. And pretty much everyone was nodding their heads saying, yeah, I agree with you. We could do better things. But there was an elderly gentleman among their midst, who said, Gang, don't do it. Let's just go out there tonight and give it our best. We promised people a show. We've taken their money. Who cares if there's a handful? Let's just give it our best. Come on. And he encouraged them to go at it again. Well, that night, they were right. Less people showed up than the night before. I mean, it was a handful with an open hand. But they played their hearts out. They did their best. And they had the satisfaction of a job well done. And when it was all over, and they were stretching and ready to go home, the old gentleman who encouraged them to go on excitedly found the group and ran up with a little note in his hand. He said, guys, listen, quiet. And he opened the note, and it simply read, Thank you for a great performance, signed, Your King. The king, incognito, happened to show up to that performance. He was going through town. They had no idea that they were going to be playing for the really the one for whom it counts. The king of the entire country was watching them, and he congratulated them. And you know, God is really watching our lives. And we don't do what we do because people clap for us or recognize us or give us encouragement. We do it for God. We're going to stand before him one day. And Paul's concern is, my king is watching me. And I want to do it for his glory. And so he persevered. And then finally, as we mentioned also, the lesson of God's providence. That you are not a victim of chance. But Romans 8 says, all things work together for good to those who love God. God didn't keep you out there and then just let you find your own way through life. You have periods of pleasure. You have periods of pain. But if you're a Christian, you're different from a non-believer. And that is, if you're a Christian, those things are known by God in advance and prescribed for you in advance. There's a purpose for those things to touch your life. A non-believer goes through life and he just has those things happen to him for no good reason. They just happen because they happen. And when they happen, he goes, what a bummer. But the Christian can say, Eh, A bummer, but a blessing behind it. There's a blessing in it because God wouldn't allow this to come into my life unless he had a foreordained providential purpose. And so I pray that in your down times in the ministry, that you'd see God's providence and that you'd grab hold of perseverance. Say, Lord, I do this for your glory. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep walking for your glory. Heavenly Father, we are always under your eye, under your care, under your concern. Nothing escapes your eye. You told us that all things are naked and open before the one with whom we have to do. And so, Father, as you would search our hearts and search our lives, we pray that we would be found pleasing in your sight as the psalmist prayed. May the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Your sight, O God. So, Father, strengthen these feeble knees and raise our hands high. And though we don't understand these circumstances around us, I pray that your purpose would be accomplished and we would submit to it. Give us wisdom, Lord, and how to function during these times. Give us your grace. Lord, how we love your word, how it speaks to our hearts. We've been fed and nourished, Lord, tonight by the example of Paul. Lord, send us forth from here to do your bidding. And I pray, Lord, if people have come tonight who don't know Jesus Christ personally, that they would, would see the exciting kind of a life that a Christian can have, that even in these periods of, of tribulation, you work a purpose for it unlike anything they 've ever known. Lord following you is truly an adventure, and I pray that if they haven't made a commitment that tonight they would turn their hearts to you. I pray that they would be restless until they find their rest in you in Jesus' name.